I'm very thankful this morning for that reminder of God's truth in song. I'm a child of the King. And that should inform the way I interact with the world. It should transform the way I interact with the world. That is a truth that I think we sometimes forget. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you are a child of the King of the universe. The very one who powerfully spoke creation into existence calls you his son or his daughter. That's truth. And truth is what sets you free. I want to talk to you about three truths that we find near the end of John chapter 3. If you want to turn there with me. We'll just read three verses. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Through 30, four verses. Just to give us a context, what is going on at this time is there has been a man who refers to himself as a voice crying in the wilderness. A person who is speaking of the best thing to come. God who has chosen to dwell among us in flesh. That is what's been going on. John, who we call John the Baptist, has been proclaiming that this Messiah is coming. And now He's here. And Jesus has been going about and people have been hearing Him and Nicodemus has come to Him at night and He has told Him what it takes to know God and to know peace, which is to be born from above. And He tells Him how that happens, which is when God draws you to a place of an understanding of who you are and who He is, you throw yourself on His mercy and repent and ask for His forgiveness. That is the message that Jesus is preaching and living. And that is the message that has been culminated in His arrival that all of the Old Testament pointed to. And now we see that already people are misunderstanding, trying to entrap Him, and all sorts of things. And that's the context of these verses. 27th verse of John 3, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. There are three transformational, powerful truths that if we can get these in our spirits and our hearts and our minds, will change the way we live in this world. And they're simple. 
We make things so unnecessarily complicated. The first one we see in verse 27 when John says, A man can receive nothing unless it's given him from heaven. James in his letter tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God gives good things because He is good. That is a foundational basic truth that we just lose sight of sometimes. You understand the reason God does good things is not because He's trying to do good things. He does what is consistent with His character and He is good. That can't be said about anybody else. Except Jesus, God in the flesh. Sometimes I do good things through the help of the Lord, through the revelation or impression of His Spirit. Sometimes you may do good things, but I, in my essence, am not good. The Apostle Paul said, I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which I desire, I find not. There's something, there's a war that he writes about that is always going on. There's a a spiritual desire that when God saved me, he gave me a new living heart so that I could hear his voice. And there's that desire to do what his voice directs. But then my flesh is in constant opposition to that. And part of me wants to tell you, just relax. It's going to be that way the rest of your life on this earth. Sanctification is not about um, bringing your fleshly tabernacle to a state of perfection. It's about trying to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. One of my very favorite scriptures says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you have repented and trusted Jesus and been saved by His grace, God looks at you through the perfect Jesus Christ. If you're His child, He looks at you with no criticism, no malice, no ill will. So stop beating yourself up. This is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is Jesus is our everything. And when we're saved by His grace, He remains our everything. We have this weird habit as people, when God saves us, then we, we're like, thanks for saving me, I'm glad I'm going to heaven, let me go figure out how to serve you on my own. Why do we do that? I preached a message one time, I think I called it 10 Steps to a Miserable Life. And it was all about relying on your own strength. As a child of God, that's a good way to be miserable. Now, I'm not talking about a license to sin, but we need to remember this basic foundational truth that God loves us because He is love. God is good to us because He is good. And He looks on us with mercy and compassion because Jesus has made a way. God never wavers in His goodness. He never wavers... In his steadfastness. He never wavers in his character. He never wavers in what he believes. We can't say the same thing about ourselves and we shouldn't. 
because we are imperfect. I say this often, jokingly, but also serious. People will say, oh, I don't agree with everything he believes or everything he says. And I say, I don't agree with everything I say. That's part of being a human and trying to grow in the grace of Jesus. I don't think exactly the same things I thought five years ago. We should develop and learn and rest in His grace. We should depend on Him more and more. This is so foundational, it's so simple, and yet it will free your life if you will just understand that God is good and that's why He treats you well. It's not about you. Every good thing comes from God. That's the first truth. And John, in his message, in his life, he proclaimed and lived this truth. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Every interaction we see John having with people is pointing them toward the Christ with the most undivided focus that I think we see in Scripture. He had one life purpose. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. One is coming after me who was before me. He's greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie His shoes, if we put it in modern words. That's the message. I love this also, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. That's part of God's goodness. Most of the problems in our world come from some form of darkness. The only way to drive out darkness is to shine light. We don't have light to shine on our own. God is light. The people around us, I'll get into this more in a minute, but they don't need just more information. They need light. It won't help a blind person or a person who's in darkness if you just tell them information. They need light. You can't see where you're going. You need your path to be illuminated. You don't need a bunch of theories about what paths are like. How there's asphalt roads and concrete roads and and brick roads and stone roads and dirt roads. That doesn't help you. If you can't see where you're going, all you need is light. Not theories, not information. And all of this is found in God. The second truth that we see. John says clearly, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before Him. I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before Him. He understood His purpose and His identity. He understood why he was alive. This point that I'm making is John had a proper perspective. You want to have peace and freedom in your life? You want to make a difference in the world? You want to help people who need helping? We must have a proper perspective. Remember Zig Ziglar, the great motivator, businessman. He used to call this perspective that people would get that was self-destructive, stinking thinking. Remember that? Some of you older ones do. A lot of Christians have stinking thinking. A lot of Christians... Man, I, I look at some Christians and I think, are, uh, what's wrong? Why are you so miserable? Stinking thinking. 
We don't have the right perspective. We forgot why we're here. We forgot what God can do. We must have a proper perspective. We see here such a beautiful illustration that I won't have time to get into in depth because it's not the thrust of what God has put on my heart. But we see the picture of a wedding and a bride and a bridegroom. And we see that each one of them has a proper perspective of their role in that ceremony. I uh, performed a wedding ceremony last night. And my role was to speak about what marriage was and is, try to remind these two young people what their vows mean. And I told them, I said, I want you to always remember that your marriage is about more than you. Your marriage, if you seek the Lord and allow Him to help you, will be a picture of the type of love and peace that is available in this life. Sometimes we lose sight of that. He says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I have a picture from my wedding with my wife that's my very favorite picture. We're both standing up there, and um, my friend Ben Stickle, who married us, is standing in the middle. And she and I are both looking at each other smiling, and he's looking at me smiling with the most radiant, heartfelt joy that only comes from a person who's a deep friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist looked at Jesus. See, Ben, in my wedding, knew it wasn't about him. He was just facilitating these vows before God. It was about my wife and I coming together with a focus on the Lord. And John recognized he had a proper perspective that it wasn't about him. The wedding wasn't about him. Life wasn't about him. It's all about the bridegroom coming to make a way to call his bride home one day. friend of the bridegroom stands and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That picture I talked about captures that. It's amazing. Viewing the world through the lens of truthful reality will lead us to the point that we can say what John the Baptist said, this my joy therefore is fulfilled. In other words, my friend is happy. That's all I care about. What if, as God's people, we could get to the point where, I mean, I don't mean words, I don't mean some kind of religious peer pressure, I don't mean what what one of our brothers or sisters thinks about us, but I mean the point that from our hearts, all we cared about, what gave us joy in life is knowing that Jesus is happy with what we're doing. So simple. We make it so unnecessarily complex. I didn't say it's easy, because this contention between spirit and flesh is difficult. We have to surrender that to the Lord constantly. We have to allow Him to crucify our flesh constantly, but it's so simple. You want to know how to be a good church member? You don't have to look at the church covenant. You don't have to look at a bunch of rules. How to be a good church member is what I'm doing making Jesus happy. James also says, I want to read just a little bit of this, 3.14, If you're bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. 
One of the scariest things I've ever seen in the Lord's congregation is pride, arrogance, strife, resentment, personality conflicts. These things are part of us because they're part of the flesh and we have to deal with it. If we're human, we'll admit there's some people in here you naturally like better than some other people here. That's okay. That's how we are. But it should never rise to the point of arrogance, bitterness, envy, or strife in God's house. What is supposed to happen in the Lord's house is like the song says, His blood has made us one. We come from many different backgrounds. We have different ideas and opinions. We grew up in different places. We come together. We lay all that aside. We love God first. We love each other second. We want the same thing, which is the truth to be promulgated into the world so people can be free. Everything else melts away. Everybody agreeing or having the same opinion is not unity. I see this happen, especially in some bigger churches. Everybody tries not to offend anybody. And they think that's unity. The loudest voice speaks and everybody else keeps their mouth shut. That's not unity. Unity is us realizing maybe part of what I think is true and some of it's not. And I need to let go of that part that's not. I need to let my brother that's good at something I'm not good at do it. I don't care if he gets attention because all the attention goes to Jesus. Unity is about proclaiming the truth of Jesus, not having the same idea about things. When I see God's people debating in love, questioning in love, that gives me great hope. When I see God's people having a uniform opinion about something, I'm very fearful. Because Jesus came to establish a new and living way that is personal. There is absolute truth and there are truths that apply to all of us, but God may impress me that I should do something or let go of a particular activity in my life and I have to answer to Him, even if you're comfortable with me doing that thing. We have to listen to Him. It's more than just having the same opinion. Let's remind ourselves of Galatians 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You have a battle within yourself sometimes? Walk in the Spirit. So you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh and these two are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We don't talk about that enough. God didn't save us and call us to repentance and give us salvation just so we could submit ourselves to some type of law. He saved us so we could follow Him in liberty. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 
of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You, you, You don't need religious rules when you're serving the Lord from a right heart. Because what you do when it comes from a right heart is automatically in line with His goodwill. He continues and says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. God help us as His people. There should never be envy. There should never be conceit. Read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, on love. That's what we should have. It's okay to recognize our weaknesses, and it's okay to recognize our personal strengths. But then to also recognize your brother's strengths, and to be okay with him being better at something than you are. Listen, I can't be good at everything. I don't want to carry that burden. I began realizing a long time ago that there are some things I'm just not good at. I'm not naturally organized. I'm not naturally apathetic. I'm not naturally just, you know, even. Some people are better at always being stable. I'm better at being, like, passionate. And I need those people to help balance me. But some of those people need people like me to wake them up. God has called and made and created us differently for a reason. That's part of the proper perspective. Part of me doesn't want to talk about this part, but I have a job. I have a duty to preach what God has given me. We need a proper perspective on current societal issues. It's so much easier to come to church and just preach a a, a church message. And you know what? The world who hates Jesus is happy for us to be over here in our little religious box talking about our little religious issues and not saying anything about their world. They'll let us do that as long as we want. But our job as God's people is to speak to the issues at hand. The world we live in. The people who are drowning and need rescuing. The people who are blind and need sight. The people who are in darkness and need light. That's our job. We need a proper perspective on these protests and riots, and masks, and marriage, and education, and family, and the home. We need a proper perspective on these things so we can, with God's help, shine light. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. But the way of the righteous is as the shining light that shines more and more into the perfect day. I'm not going to dwell on each one of these, but there's a couple that I have to emphasize. Have you watched some of the protests and riots that have gone on? I watch these videos, not just what's on the news, but I mean where a person took their camera and showed what's going on. And you know what I see? I see a bunch of 20-something-year-old white females. Belligerent, angry Let's go back to the things that we're not supposed to have. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, all of this stuff. I see white females 
protesting about Black Lives Matter, yelling obscenities in the face of black police officers. There's something wrong. We need a proper perspective about this stuff. And if it makes you uncomfortable that I'm talking about it, I want to ask you to ask God if you should be uncomfortable. If the preachers of God don't speak truth, who can we expect to? You know what I want to say to these people in these types of environments? You've been lied to. You've been misled. I realize you've never had a stable foundation in your life. Maybe you don't have a father at home. Maybe you don't know what reality is. But this is not the way. What is going on in this type of... Listen, Jesus said the enemy comes not but to still kill and destroy. We look at our society, it's full of stealing, killing, and destroying. We have political leaders who say that, well, these rioters are excused, they just need some food. And then they're stealing TV. It's not about food. They're destroying personal property. It's not about self-preservation. It doesn't make sense. And it's not popular to talk about, but we have to be willing to look at what's going on and say, God, what is the truth? None of this destruction comes from God. None of this bitter envying and strife comes from God. None of this anger and dissension and malice comes from God. I, I preached a couple weeks ago, and I need to upload it so people can hear it, but social justice and the biblical worldview. Social justice as it is practiced in our world right now has nothing to do with a biblical worldview. What is going on, all of this stuff that I'm talking about, and then I'm going to move on, is an intentional, systematic result of decades of indoctrination led by the enemy of Jesus Christ, Satan. Amen. He came to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to destroy the biblical definition of family. Amen. He wants to emasculate men. He wants to masculinize women. God created us different for a reason. And I want to tell, especially you young women, I go through stores, I see the magazines on the shelves, I, I, I notice what you're bombarded with, and I... Listen, if God wanted you to be a man, He would have made you a man. It's okay for you to be a woman. So, what's going on is a lot of people who have no foundation, they haven't been exposed to truth, they've been indoctrinated by people who don't have a biblical worldview. If you can't see this as God's people, that we're in a spiritual warfare battle, I beg you, turn off your TV, turn off your Facebook, Get away from the noise and ask God if I'm not right. We're in battle. It's not just a battle for my rights as an American. It's a battle for men's souls. All of this stuff that's going on is a distraction. Let me prove it to you. Have you spent more time lately worried 
about what the experts say about coronavirus than praying to God about what He thinks about it. Have you? Almost every single Christian, that's true. You've spent more time reading Facebook about what's going on about it than actually asking God to fix it. Don't lie. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the rulers of this present darkness. There are things being done by the principalities and the rulers in high places that are unspeakable. Do some research if you don't know. Evil. You know what? It's not new. In the Old Testament, people sacrificed their children to Moloch. Did you know in the time of Israel when people, these heathen nations, built a house, they would sometimes bury their child in the corner of the house to, to try to sanctify it to a false god and get their blessing? They sacrificed their children for prosperity. How's that different than what our culture's doing? You think, I don't like saying this stuff, but it's true. We need God to break our hearts about it. We need Him to empower us to speak against it. We need Him to embolden us. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We need God to raise up some lions again. Say, why are you so loud? I'm not angry. I feel impassioned about this. What happened to scriptures like only be strong and courageous? What happened to scriptures like sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among us? What happens to I will fight for you? Why don't we remember stuff like that? What happened to as for me and my house we will serve the Lord? I am going to live according to the dictates of my conscience. And what the Holy Spirit shows me, I don't care if you like it or not. What happened to people who will say that? Not with arrogance, not with pride, but with sincere humility. You remember Elijah up in the mountain doing battle with the enemies of God? He came to this point where he said, If Baal is God, serve him. But if the Lord is God, then serve him. And you know what it says? The people answered him not a word. They were stuck in such a place of indecision that they weren't even sure. We're living there, brothers and sisters. Christian people have some weird ideas that didn't come from the Bible. The underlying cause of all this stuff that's going on, all this societal unrest, all this sides being mad at each other. You know what the foundational thing is? The principalities and powers don't want anybody to speak in the name of Jesus. That's what it's about. Look at Acts chapter 4. Peter and John healed a man. They're speaking in the name of Jesus. Freedom, healing, love, life. That's what they're talking about. Forgiveness from sins. They're thrown in jail. And do you know if the leaders could have gotten by with it, they would have killed them. The only reason they didn't at that time is because these two, through the power of God, were so powerful in the eyes of the people that they couldn't hurt them. And so here's what they did. It says they, they severely charged them. Stop speaking in that name. And they let them go. So they go back to their company, their little church, as it were. 
This is one of the most powerful things in the New Testament. They go back to them and they tell them what happened. And these people fall on their faces before God. And they pray and they recognize who He is. And they say, Sovereign Lord, who basically nothing happens in this world unless you allow it. Amen. They recognize all He's done and all He can do. It's all focused on Him. And then what do they pray for? Boldness. Therefore, give us boldness that we may stand. Not protect us. Not keep us safe. Give us boldness. The righteous are bold as a lion. Listen, there is power in the name of Jesus and Christians must get back to speaking in the name of Jesus. We have been conditioned by an emasculated form of Christianity that says, I am not a good Christian if I make you feel uncomfortable. It it influences us. God's people. People who actually know Him. It influences me. We've replaced the freedom-giving biblical truth with tolerance. And the best way to show somebody to God is to be nice to them. It's not what Jesus taught. Jesus loved people enough to look them in the eye and say, your father's the devil. And you're doing the work of your father, the devil. Jesus loved people enough to look them in the eye and say, don't think to claim Abraham as your heritage. I can raise up children unto Abraham out of these stones. Jesus loved Nicodemus enough to tell him how to gain peace. And that was to come to him and surrender everything. Jesus loved his followers enough to say, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Jesus loved the people who would follow him enough to tell him it wasn't going to be easy. We got to get away from this watered down cultural Christianity. It's not real and it's not helping anybody. Right now, so many sincere hearted Christians spend all of our time apologizing for having an opinion. What's our job? Our job is to speak the truth in love. You can lovingly tell somebody they're on a bad path. You can lovingly look at someone and say, that's a bad idea. Not all ideas are created equal. Not all cultures are beneficial. It's okay as God's people to have an opinion. We live in a generation, and I'm not talking about an age group. I'm talking about the spirit of the age, zeitgeist. We live in a generation of people who are uncomfortable if anybody has an opinion about anything. Truth shouldn't make God's people uncomfortable. Those who love the light come to the light that their deeds might be exposed. When it makes us uncomfortable, we should fall on our faces before God and say, cleanse me of my darkness. Show me your truth. Listen, especially to my age people and younger people, I want you to know as you're growing up in this weird world that we live in, where good is called evil and evil is called good, where things don't make any sense, you can stand for what you believe in and still be loving. It broke my heart when I saw that little girl, college girl, 
I, I guess she's in college, the, the U.S. women's soccer team, and she was the only one that stood for the um, national anthem. And she felt the need to apologize to her teammates. That, that doesn't bother you all. It bothers me. Not, it's not about nationalism or America. You, you shouldn't have to apologize for standing for something that you believe in. If a person can't stand for a song, how can we expect them to stand for Jesus? And for truth. And to love a person to say, listen, you've been lied to. This lifestyle you're engaging in is not going to give you peace. I don't want to hurt you, but I love you enough to tell you. You know what will give you peace? Jesus. We're the warriors of God who will stand in the face of evil. We're the men. We're the women. And I want to ask you this, because I really believe that fear is the root of all disobedience to God. Fear is faithlessness. And faithlessness is what causes us not to serve Him. How do we get so afraid? I mean, really. Take a moment and ask yourself, when did I become so afraid? Listen to this from Psalm 91. I've got, I think this is the NIV. I, I just want it in modern language so you don't miss anything. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in whom I trust, surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. I ask you again, how did we get so afraid? This is the legacy of the people of God. We're called to be a kingdom of, of kings and priests in His name. We're supposed to be fearless warriors. There's some words I wish I could say to describe how we actually are, but I I can't say it publicly. We're wimpy. Why? Where have the Davids gone? I'm not talking about King David. I'm talking about young Shepherd David, who was so young he didn't know any better. He came... He didn't have any pride about it. He didn't have any self-reliance about it. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Where have those people gone? Where are the people who love the Lord enough to look at these principalities and powers and say, who do you think you are? You're an enemy of Christ. You know why he had that boldness and confidence? Because his eyes were on God. And he told Saul, I mean, I love this, a young man. Saul says, you can't do this. You're just a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. And David gave him real life examples of God's deliverance and why he was qualified. He said, I was keeping sheep for my father, even though he was the youngest and least in his family. And a bear came and a lion came. I killed those with God's help and I'll kill this uncircumcised Philistine just like that. Where have those people gone? I saw a lot of Christians sharing this post about a, a vaccine trial 
And it said, finally, there's some hope. What happened to having hope in Jesus? I'm not anti-vaccine, I'm not anti-medical, but when, when you're cowering afraid, and then something like that comes out and you say, finally, some hope. Did you hear what I read? Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. What happened to Jesus being our hope? I'm not talking about being stupid or careless or insensitive or unkind. But what happened to Him being our hope and our refuge and our strength? I also see a lot of Christian people say things like this. Trust the science. What if the scientists are so steeped in an anti-biblical worldview that they can't find truth? What if the scientists are so brainwashed by their evolutionary model that they can't see truth? Are you still going to trust the scientist? Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. When did science become God? C.S. Lewis wrote about this before he died. About, he called it scientism. And he called it the magician's twin. The magician uses deception to make you believe something that's not reality. And he said scientism, which is the worship of science as religion, did the very same thing. We live in a time that Christians are more likely to trust a peer-reviewed journal than the Word of God. You know what peer-reviewed means? I'm getting real with y'all. If you don't like it, don't invite me back. I, I, I have to preach this because I don't hear anybody talking about it. You know what peer-reviewed means? It means a bunch of people who had the same academic training agree. That's called academic collectivism. Do you know who killed Jesus? People who had a bunch of religious collectivism. That comes from consensus. And I want to remind you, in case you forgot, consensus doesn't bring freedom, truth does. If thousands of people agree about something that's false, it doesn't make it more true. I have friends in academia. They have trouble getting anything published. Not just if it has a biblical worldview, but if it doesn't have an overtly secular humanist worldview. You want to get peer-reviewed, you have to have a secular humanist worldview. What secular humanist? What does that mean? Secular, the opposite of spiritual or religious. Humanism, man-focused instead of God-focused. As God's people, our eyes are supposed to be on Him. It's not about what I can figure out, what I can understand, what I can learn. The scientific process can never prove God. It is... Basically, things that are measurable, observable, and repeatable. You can't do any of that to the spiritual realm. It takes faith. Let me ask you this, and this this is personal. You think Jesus or Dr. Fauci knows more about coronavirus? (laughs) Have you spent more time watching videos about what Dr. Fauci thinks or more time asking God what he thinks? Well, how did you get so afraid? I have to hit this too. Unquestionably submitting to whatever our secular leaders tell us is not Romans 13 Christianity. It's Exodus 20 idolatry. Worshiping the state is not Christianity. 
Submitting yourself blindly to whatever the leader says without examining your hearts and asking God for the illumination of His Spirit is not Romans 13 Christianity. It's not what Paul talked. This is idolatry. It's worshiping a false god. God taught us, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We have Christians actually, literally, not metaphorically, bowing down in our culture to a false god of peer pressure. I could spend a whole week talking about this very issue. But I just want to give you one or two examples. For people who read Romans 13 and make a blanket... And by the way, if you don't, that's, submit yourselves to every authority for God's sake, to the king, the rulers. The Bible is full of God's people who didn't do that. And if they didn't do that, Jesus would never have come. Rahab the harlot didn't submit herself to those rulers. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I like their Hebrew names better. Oh, I love their hearts. I love their, their attitudes. I pray God, give me a heart like that. Not arrogance. Not pride. And Daniel, they went into this pagan culture who was anti-God. They had a state-mandated health program that they defied. You remember that? Yeah. King, we can't eat your meat. That's right. Now, they weren't belligerent about it. They just stood. And they had a, a favor with God, with one of the king's representatives. And they convinced them to let them try it God's way. And he let them, and they ended up healthier than the people who were following the state-mandated religious regime. That's true. We're not supposed to blindly accept anything as God's people. We're supposed to seek Him. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar made a decree that they all had to bow? This was, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which was in the same time frame, a law couldn't be undone. It wasn't like our laws, which can just be modified and amended and all this. This was, they staked their life on it. And so in some ways, this law was more um, definite not just than a mayor or a governor's decree, it was more definite than, than a Supreme Court decision. He made a law. You have to bow down to this image. And they couldn't. They couldn't. They disobeyed the authority that was over them. Because they had a greater authority, which was their conscience. There's truth that we can't defy. They didn't make a big deal about it. They weren't protesting about it. I doubt they would have been tweeting about it or Facebooking about it if they had technology. They just did what was right. And word got to the king, and he brought him, and he basically said, what's going on? And I love how they answered. They said, O king, our God whom we serve can deliver us from this fiery furnace if he chooses. But even if he doesn't, we can't bow. We can't. That's so different than the polarized stuff that I see among so-called Christians, far left and far right. It's like, it's like bickering kindergartners. Amen. It's so different to stand resolutely for something you believe in and not to be belligerent and not to be disrespectful, but to say, look, King, I respect your position. 
but I serve somebody who's the king of you. And I can't bow. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to cause problems, but I can't bow. And God might deliver me. I don't know if He will or not, but whether He does or not, this isn't circumstantial. My convictions are deeper than what might happen to my flesh. I can't bow. God delivered them. But there are plenty of people in history that He didn't deliver. You know what? They went to their heavenly reward. This life is a vapor. And I really believe what we do in this life makes us more or less suited to enjoy heaven. And we're going to spend eternity in heaven. And if it's worth a little bit of discomfort here to know God better there, I'll take it. I'm going to move along a little bit faster. The greatest threat to this world isn't a stock market crash or the coronavirus or a pandemic, a noisome pestilence uh, that, that, that stalks at night or devours in the day. The greatest threat to this generation is Christians who don't have a biblical worldview. Progressive Christianity is far more damaging than atheism. There are people who overtly, I mean, it's not hidden, it's not in, 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 in camouflage or in darkness. They say Christianity has to uh, develop with the times. It must evolve. It needs to be more inclusive. Churches are getting smaller because we're not inclusive enough. That's, that's not Christianity. The third point, and this might be maybe the most important one. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I have told you passionately some things from my heart that I have been unable to camouflage behind indifference. I, I just can't. I've felt the need to, to, to speak real. But I recognize this is my words. And unless it's accompanied by the certainty of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, it's just my words. I've tried to discern what is true, and I'm trying to speak what is true, but at the same time I recognize He must increase. Amen. And I must decrease. If it means Him increasing, for me to realize I was wrong, I'll change my opinions. I've done it before. He must increase. It doesn't matter... Please hear me on this. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what is true. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is whether Jesus is being lifted up. And if God's people lift Him up, you're going to feel better anyway. It's so hard for so many of us, so much of the time, to allow ourselves to decrease. It's countercultural. It's counterhuman. It is against human nature to allow yourself to diminish. Do you know that? Our natures are wired the way they are for a reason, with a fight or flight response, with the need to, to, to make it, to press forward. It's not natural to let yourself shrink. But that is what the child of God is called to. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. When we try to prevent our own decrease, when we try to preserve our own fleshly gains, when we try to hold on to the state that we're in, it becomes like pouring buckets of water out of a sinking ship. And follow me in this analogy for a moment. Living in this life, in my body, this tabernacle of flesh, is as if I am in a ship that is always sinking. Every time I rely on my flesh, there's a big hole in the ship and i got my little bucket and I'm just shoveling the water out. And I'm so busy shoveling the water out that I don't even notice there's a lifeboat beside me. (laughs) Shovel, shovel, shovel. I'm so busy. There's a lifeboat. We're on a sinking ship. The lifeboat is pulled up beside us. This is the lifeboat of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. What we need, you want to help people? Stop shoveling water out of your sinking ship and get on the lifeboat of Jesus. Amen. Relying on your flesh is, is, is self-destructive. It's miserable. And you're not helping anybody. We can abandon the ship of our own righteousness, throw ourselves out on the lifeboat of Jesus, and then we can look around and watch our righteousness sink. And then you know what you'll see? A sea full of people who are drowning that you couldn't even see before because you're too busy bailing water out of your sinking ship. How come to get to the place of salvation we bring ourselves through God's grace to a point of unconditional surrender... And then as Christians, many Christians live their whole life never surrendered again. You spend the whole rest of your life. It's like you surrender so a lifeboat can come and then you spend the whole rest of your life shoveling water out of a sinking ship. Why? Stop trying to do it on your own and get on the boat of Jesus. We think our job is to keep our ship afloat. Wasted energy. Stop trying to shout at people from the sinking ship of your own strength. Let go of everything you've. I'm talking to save people. Let go of everything you're trusting in. Let go of your own righteousness. Stop trusting in your own understanding. Stop trusting in Facebook fact checkers or right wing media sources. Stop trusting in that stuff. Stop going to the left or to the right. Go to Jesus. When we abandon our sinking ship and get on the lifeboat, that's when we can actually be used by God to do something that matters. I don't know about you all, but I've had something inside of me since I was a young man that I've never been able quite to put into words, but it's something like not wanting to waste my life. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I don't want to waste my life. The only way I know how to do that, to not waste my life, is to do something that God will be pleased with. I want to read, before I close, a a brief segment from A.W. Tozer. He, He wrote this 60 or 70 years ago. And I think it encapsulates a lot of what's on my heart today. He says, Christ calls men to carry a cross. We call them to have fun in His name. 
He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them that if they just accept Jesus, the world is their oyster. He calls them to suffer. We call them to enjoy all the bourgeois comforts of modern civilization. He calls them to self-abnegation and death. We call them to spread themselves like green bay trees or perchance even to become stars in a pitiful fifth-rate religious zodiac. He calls them to holiness. We call them to a cheap and tawdry happiness that would have been rejected with scorn by the least of the Stoic philosophers. He says, a new Decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christians of our day, the first word of which reads, Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes too, which begins, Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. It is now the accepted thing to talk over religious differences in public with the understanding that no one will try to convert another one or point out errors in his belief. Imagine Moses agreeing to take part in a panel discussion with Israel over the golden calf. Or Elijah engaging in a gentlemanly dialogue with the prophets of Baal. Or try to picture our Lord Jesus Christ seeking a meeting of minds with the Pharisees to iron out differences. The blessing of God is promised to the peacemaker, but the religious negotiator had better watch his step. Darkness and light can never be brought together by talk. Some things are not negotiable. I pray that God will strengthen His children to stop being negotiators with the powers of darkness and to stand for the light. Pray pray for that with me. 